Thank you for joining us today for the Restoration Church Podcast. This is our second in our series in James, and it is called Untethered Emotions Cannot Keep Us in Motion. We hope you enjoy. I'll turn your Bibles to James chapter, uh, we're going to start in James chapter 5, we're actually going to spend most of our time in James chapter 1, but I just want to show you something in a second as we get started. Um, so James chapter 5 and James chapter 1, if you want to be prepared for both, one way or the other. So there is a, a cultural belief, and it's a, a belief I would ultimately agree in, I think. I think most of us would, that emotions, emotions put us in emotion. Emotions put us in emotion. Now, we see that. We've seen that in movies for most of our lives, right? Uh, on, on Father's Day, I think it would be appropriate to refer to Braveheart. I think every Father's Day sermon, you have to have a Braveheart reference at least one time. Um, so in the movie Braveheart, where William Wallace is running up and down the lines, giving his speech to his, his, his uh, warriors, his army, so that they can uh, find within them the, the fire and the inspiration, even the rage, if you will, to go and do things they wouldn't normally do. Uh, we've seen that. My, one of my favorite uh, books and, or, or, or plays, if you will, and then the, the movie adaptation is Henry V uh, by Shakespeare and then Kenneth Branagh's movie ad- adaptation of it with the uh, St. Crispin's Day speech. Um, where Henry V and the uh, character he plays goes up and down the line and gives a St. Crispin's Day speech and inspires his, his people to move, to go into battle through that emotional engagement. Emotions put us in emotion. Oh, uh, a lot of us that probably immediately begin to think of, uh, if any of us played sports, uh, that halftime speech that we probably got a few times. If we were down by 20 or 30, not playing our best. Um, I've seen the videos. I, didn't, I never had a coach quite like this, but I've seen the videos of some coaches like Will Muschamp or others who will come in and just kick over chalkboards and slam things and probably say some things we couldn't say this morning and, uh, and just really get, get angry and get the team fired up because they discover that uh, that emotion puts their team into motion. I've even experienced this spiritually. I, I can remember when I, was, I went to a small Christian college uh, for the first couple of years um, uh, in, in Pensacola, um, I ended up leaving that, that school in Pensacola and going to another school. They didn't have any hot babes in the school I was at in Pensacola, so I went to another one and uh, found Kiersey there. That's where, all the, that's where at least one hot babe was. So I uh, went to another one. But anyway, I started in, in Pensacola, and uh, we used to go down to something called Seville Square, and we would build relationships with homeless to serve them, hang out with them, really befriend them. It's all about just becoming friends with them. And uh, I would always get nervous to do that. It would make me, i get scared. But I was trying to help help people get to know Jesus, get to know me first, and then get to know Jesus through that relationship and, uh, sh- and share the gospel with them. Uh, and I would get nervous, and I wouldn't want to engage them or get to know them or definitely tell them the truth of uh, truth about Jesus. So I'd, in order to do that, I'd have to get inside my head and like get into this emotional space and, and remember all the, uh, even remember the realities of hell and all that kind of thing so that I could have the emotional motivation I needed to move, to act. Emotions uh, put us in emotion. James is actually going to teach us something that's a complementary idea uh, to that idea. Um, While it's true that emotions put us in emotion, James is going to help us see that untethered emotions can't keep us in motion. And that's going to be the big idea of the text. Untethered emotions can't keep us in motion. So that even even though we see in the movies, we see in life, we've experienced that emotions we put us in emotions, untethered emotions can't keep us in motion. So in order to get going in James chapter 5... Um, we're gonna, I'm in James chapter 1. I want us to look at James chapter 5, verse 19 first. Uh, and the reason why is because I want us to see where James lands. Um, if you were giving a speech, if you were giving a, uh, in a movie, 
It's really that last bit that is the, the main bit, right? Uh, we've seen that in Matthew. Uh, we studied Matthew for a long time. We saw the very last text in Matthew's The Great Commission. It's, it's the last word of the book. So your last word is always going to be pretty impactful and pretty important. Matthew chapter 5, verse 19 gives us kind of the last word of James. It's important because it helps us understand what James is getting at the whole time. It's verse 19 says this. It says, My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, he should know that whoever he turns that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and to cover a multitude of his sins. Well, we'll get into that a lot later as we study the book of James. But it's important to have that as context uh, for what we're going to read today. So we're going to be in verse 19 in a moment. But keep that in mind and then rem remember what Will taught through last week in uh, verses 2 through 18. So in verses 2 through 18, what Will taught through last week was uh, a couple of different texts that teach us. The first one is, is kind of the first half of that is about God giving us wisdom. And it's James's way to describe and explain that God gives us the Word of God and how to apply the Word of God, the theology and what to do with our theology. Some people might say this is orthodoxy and orthopraxy. James is concerned with giving us the Word of God and how to live it out. And then the second half of the text, or the second half of the first chapter, uh, verses around 12 through 18, he says, the Bible says that, that Jesus, that God is the giver of all good things. And it speaks to the graciousness of God and the giving nature of God. Uh, helping us remind and reflect on his character. And out of his character of graciousness and giving, God gives us the word of God. As a matter of fact, I do want you to look at this one. Because it's, it's important to what we're going to talk about today. Uh, look at verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dearly loved brother. So we're in verse 16. It takes a while to get caught up. Verse 17, every generation, uh, generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of life, lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. Um, verse 18, by his own choice, by his own will, he gave us a new birth, or literally he birthed us. Not he gave us a new birth, but he birthed us, is how this reads in the original language. He birthed us by the message of truth or the word of truth. So this is the same language that we see at the end of uh, Matthew chapter 5, that the word of truth is, is birthing us into what? He tells us, uh, birthing us into being the first fruits of his creatures or his new creation. Basically what Jesus is saying here is that he is, or what James is saying about Jesus is that through the word, through the word and its wisdom in the first part of the text, he is birthing out into us the new creation that he designed us to be. God designed us to be a new creation. So that's what we've read about the first couple of, couple of chapters. We might summarize it this way. That God wants us to have joy. He refers to it as count it all joy or, or be blessed, experience joy. God wants us to have joy no matter what happens in us and through us. And that we experience that joy in relation to our ability to hear and obey God's word. And God's word means something maybe slightly different in this text than what we might immediately think, but not completely different. I'll show you what I mean by that in a second. So now let's get into the text we really want to focus in on. It's verse 19. So that's the context. God's word has been very prevalent in the first part of this, of this chapter. God's word, God's speaking to us, has been the, been the, the theme. It's been the, the, the key that the text has been played in so far. Verse 19. My dearly, dearly beloved brothers, he's about to give us Something very important. Understand this. This is very important. He's going to get into his true introduction of the book. The first, the first uh, part of the text is more of an almost poetic way to introduce the book. Now he's going to lay out his plan for the book. Verse 19. Uh, um, in the middle of verse 19. He's going to give us a triplet. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For man's anger does not accomplish 
God's righteousness. I'll make a few comments about this before we move on. This is going to be a little bit of a sermon within a sermon. But I think it's important, especially on a day like today, for us to reflect on this part of the text. So he gives us a little bit of a triplet. Um, be quick to, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We've heard that. We've said that. I think there's something really important about this, this, this part of the text. I do want to pause and hit on just briefly, even though it's not the main point of the message. And it's a, a bit of wisdom of how we engage anger. Um, I think this could be applied to any of our emotions that have a tendency to get out of control. But anger is specifically the one that, that James, is, James uses. Be quick to what? Be slow to what? Speak. And be slow to? Anger. Be, be slow to anger. Be quick to hear. Be slow to speak. Be slow to anger. So for those of us in the room that deal with anger, and I'm one of them, uh, I, in, my, in my home or in my world when my expectations aren't met, um, I can get pretty angry pretty quickly. This will help us learn a bit of wisdom in the gospel of how we engage anger. Not only that, it's going to help us learn to engage people around us who are angry. So what should we do when we engage someone that is angry, ourselves or someone else? We start by shutting our mouths and listening. It is amazing to me how quickly anger escalates when my response to anger, whether from within or from without, are words from my mouth. Instead of anger, anger being shut up, it is expanded and exploded. Anger is like a fire. And that fire needs oxygen. And that fire can't get oxygen when my mouth is shut. When I am angry, and I am reflecting, and want to respond to someone in frustration or anger, if instead of responding verbally, I can, I can close my mouth, I can pause, I can listen, no matter what's coming at me, coming at me, and I can just hear, listen, seek to understand, and not respond at all during that moment, get some space, and then come back later, typically anger is unrelated to the conversation. Not only does that help me not respond in anger by going, all right, I'm not going to talk, I'm not going to dialogue, I'm not going to have that conversation now, you're angry, I'm angry, I'm just going to stop, I'm going to listen, I may ask some questions, but ultimately it's about what you say and not what I say. I'm going to seek to understand you and understand what you're feeling and what you're thinking. That's the way I'm going to engage it. Not only does that help me not respond in anger, but it helps their anger subside as well. So as we go through this text today, we're not going to spend a lot of time specifically digging in on anger. I think, though, it was important to pause and reflect on how this practice of wisdom, this practical wisdom in the relationship to anger, especially on a day we're talking about, uh, a day we're talking about dads, because I would say um, on the a top list sins of dads, probably a lot of us dads deal with anger. Um, anger in our, in our parenting or maybe anger in our marriages or maybe anger at work. Uh, when people don't do the things or, we're, or we, we're treated the way we shouldn't be treated or something along those lines. So we start by shutting our mouth. In some ways, this text made me want to, you know what I like to do. You've heard me, everybody in here has heard me speak a lot. I like to, uh, Will and I both do this, to connect our, our ideas to some, some one big sticky phrase, one idea, some, some concept that's easy to remember. Um, part of me wanted to use this as an excuse to, uh, and you'll see why some of the, the second half of this is in a minute, is to use the phrase today, uh, just shut up and do something. <laughs> because what this text is going to teach us is we need to learn to shut our mouths and serve people and do something instead of responding verbally. Why is that important? Why is it important for us to be able to, to stop our, our verbal responses in all engagements of life 
and serve people instead. Listen instead. Understand people instead. Here's why. Verse 17. Sorry, I got lost where I'm at in the text here. Where am I? Verse 20. For, for man's anger, why do you not want to do this? Verse 20. For man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. So have you ever been in a conversation, admittedly I was in one yesterday, where you felt like your anger gave you justification for how you, how you responded or wanted to respond or how you thought? Well, man, if that person just would have done X, and because they didn't do X, I am justified in my actions. Oftentimes I use anger. I was in a conversation. I was hearing about something somebody else was, had done. I was very, very angry at what that other person had done to someone I loved. And in the context of that conversation, I, I allowed myself to feel justified in an unforgiving, ungracious, bitter, attacking uh, mentality towards the individual that had done something against the person I'd done. However, so that seems right. Admit, admit to me, if you will, that in those moments that feels good. Yeah, that's right. I am justified. I should be angry. And boy, this response that I have, this, this mistreatment of this individual is justified and I'm good to do it. It feels right. It almost even feels intuitive. Very natural. Maybe a reason it feels natural. But what this text teaches us is that that does not, look at what it says. I think it's interesting. I always want to look at a different text here. Man's anger does not, it doesn't say, Sometimes does not. Might, it doesn't say it might not. It said it does not accomplish God's righteousness. This word accomplish means to live out, to practically build the behaviors and practices and habits of living righteously. It's not, when you see the word righteousness in the Bible, oftentimes it could be one of two things. On the one hand, in many, many times and throughout the Bible, righteousness is referring to the gift that God gives us. God gives us righteousness. When we put our faith in Jesus, uh, we no longer have our righteous record, which is pretty bad. We have a righteous record of Jesus in, in, in the place of our right, righteous record, and now we're considered righteous by God. But this is a different use of the idea of righteousness. It's the practical use of righteousness. It's righteousness as a gift, righteousness as a habit, righteousness as a behavior. It's us living out the righteousness that God has given us. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a very practical idea of righteousness. And what, what James is saying is, is that we will never live out God's plan, God's will, a godly life when the reason we are living it out is anger or our emotions. It is not the production or the producer of a godly lifestyle. We're going to come back to that in a minute, but let's keep reading for now. Verse 21. Therefore, or you might look at it this way, is there's a better option. So instead of God, anger producing in us righteousness, which it never will. There's a better option for us. Verse 21. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil excess, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. So this is an interesting verse because it, the way it's structured in the, in the uh, translation that I read, and really most translation, it makes it sound as if that the idea of ridding yourselves of moral filth and evil excess or how you receive God's word. But I think it actually should be better translated or better understood as a result of receiving God's word. Uh, these words that, that describe the outcome of hearing and receiving God's word are, are meant to be the, the fruit, not the cause, the result, not the cause of listening and hearing God's word. 
So that hearing God's word or receiving God's word will lead us to ridding ourselves of moral filth and evil access. Does that make sense? So as we look at that text, it would be easy to say we've got to do these things to receive God's word. But that puts us in a position of works produce righteousness and produce what we need. And we find ourselves quite incapacitated in those moments because we're spiritually bankrupt. Actually, it's describing instead of that the result of us receiving God's words. Uh, the, in context, these two descriptors could either be causes or results. I believe in context they are results of receiving God's word. And then it gets to the biggest point of the text. Humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save you. Uh, literally, the text, the translation could be, it was able to save your entire self. So the salvation that we receive from receiving the word in this passage isn't, isn't referring most likely to the salvation you might hear of spoken of in most churches where the salvation is about going to heaven or hell or becoming a Christian or not Christian. That is a big emphasis in the New Testament, right? But this is a different emphasis of salvation. It's the salvation of your whole self, emotionally, psychologically, physically. It is the salvation of your life from a destructive path. It is the result of the salvation that we experience by grace through faith. And how do, we, how do we experience that salvation? How do we experience the reading of ourselves of evil and excess and uh, moral filth? We do that by humbly receiving the implanted word. So what is the implanted word is the question that I have. Uh, the next question that comes to my mind, what is the implanted word? The word implanted in, in the, the Greek is a word that only occurs here in the entire New Testament. And it refers to something that is, that is inside of you, that's growing inside of you. Uh, a better way to think of it than implanted could be uh, something like a spring that has been uh, placed inside of you. Because it's more than just the, the root, it's the root and the results. And, and here's where I think the context helps us understand and define it. Look, look above in James, if you don't mind. Look at verse 13. says this, in this context of several texts, several passages about God's word, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, for God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Now why is that important? Because it describes our state outside of Christ. A state that we are filled with desires, evil desires that drive us towards sin, and that gives birth, it gives birth to sin, and then that sin gives birth to what? Death. Thank you. Got one of you back there. Then, as we get into verse 16 and 17 and 18, what we read earlier, the same word that is used to describe how desires give birth to sin and sin gives birth to death is used again in verse 18. And instead of death being given birth to or sin giving being birth to, something else is being born or given birth to. God is giving birth to us as new creations, new creatures with new desires and a new heart. And how is he doing that? Through what? The word of truth. So the word of God, the word of truth is the implanted word of God in our hearts. Does that remind anyone of any Old Testament passages? What does the Bible, how does the Bible announce that there's going to be a new covenant? What does it say? It says that the law of God is going to be 
written on our hearts. God's word is no longer going to be something out here, just out here. I mean, it is out here, but just out here that we read and we study and we hear a command and we go do that command and we try our best. Instead of it being something external, it's going to be something that's internal. Our hearts are going to be transformed into new creations that have new desires. And in the context of those new desires, the word of God not just being external but internal, inside of us, the word of God being inside of our own own beings and our own creation, we are now going to live out from those desires the will of God. And that's what it's referring to in verse 21 when it says that in order to experience the transforming power of the gospel, we have to receive, experience the word of God that's been implanted in our hearts. Now the Bible uses an interesting thing when you look at that theologically in the whole book, of, in, in, in the entire New Testament, the entire Old Testament, we uncovered that the law being written on our hearts is a way to refer to the, to the Holy Spirit living inside of us. The Holy Spirit living inside of us and speaking to us about God's will and God's plan and bringing the memory of Scripture into our lives and the, and the, the ideas and the applications of the gospel and the written word of God to come alive inside of us. So that what this is teaching us is that through the experience of the Holy Spirit, we are transformed into the likeness of Christ. We are transformed away from moral filth and excess evil. Our souls, our whole self is saved and transformed as we receive the word of truth, as we receive and hear and listen to the Spirit of God speak to us in our hearts, we are transformed into the vision, into the picture, the image of Jesus Christ. So that's where transformation comes from. Instead of it coming from emotion, from anger, from fear, transformation should never come from those. Godly transformation should never come from those things. Untethered emotion can't keep us in motion. But listening to the Spirit of God and being transformed and challenged by the Spirit of God can transform us, can move us, can keep us in motion. I want us to keep reading. We'll come back to that in a second. One more comment about that verse and then we'll move on. I'll go through the rest of this pretty quickly. The word that's used for receive is an interesting word because it's a choice between multiple options. So the word used for receive could be, you could have used a word, James could have used a word that would be grab by force. Another word could have been a word that he could have used that would have been talking about wrestle to the ground or that it's going to be difficult. This word for receive emphasizes the fact that it's not going to be difficult. It reminds me of catching lightning bulbs, bugs, lightning bulbs. Those probably exist too. It reminds me of catching lightning bugs. This is the time of year that you're driving down the road and you'll look out your window to the right, and you'll start to see lightning bugs. I bet the Andersons see a lot of them. Matter of fact, I've seen some at their house. <laughs> and I remember as a kid, you'd go out there, and there the lightning, sometimes it was tough, but sometimes there the lightning bug was right in front of your face. You didn't have to work hard. You didn't have to create a trap. You didn't have to create a plan or a scheme, or you didn't have to go work out for three months to get prepared to catch lightning bugs. What are you working out for? I've got to catch some lightning bugs here in about three months, so I'm trying to, trying to prep myself. Now, all you had to do, there's a lightning bug right in front of you. All you had to do is just reach out and grab it. And I believe this speaks to the reality that God is inside of, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have put your faith in Christ and he has transformed your heart and redeemed you, the spirit of God is inside of you and he is communicating with you all the time. Hearing God's voice, hearing the spirit of God communicate with us, 
is something that is happening all the time. It's not about, God, please speak to me. God is speaking to you. If you are a follower of Jesus, God is speaking to you all day, every day. It's simply learning to understand and reflect and hear when it's God's voice inside of you speaking versus the, the voices of the many distractions, including ourselves, that compete with the Spirit of God. We'll keep reading verse 22. I think what's happening in verse 22 is he's teaching us how to listen well. And really for the next several verses, he's going to teach us how to listen well. Now if you'll kind of remember, there was a triplet that went before it said, be, be uh, quick, to, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He's going to unwrap all three of those for us. He's already unwrapped for us why it's important to be slow to be angry. He's going to unwrap why it's, uh, towards the end of why it's important to be slow to speak. Most of the text is about why it's important to be quick, emphatic, focused on listening. Verse 22. How do we listen well? Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Uh, in, this, in the context of the scripture, it's saying that you should be characterized by doing. You should be characterized by doing and not just listening. How often are we characterized by being good worshipers as Christians? Are you characterized, am I characterized by being good worshipers, good people in our devotions, good people at church? But are we characterized by living out, by doing the word of God? Because if you're not, it could be because you're deceiving yourselves. Verse 23. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and right away forgets that kind of man he was. So he's teaching us that to be a good listener means that we have to be a doer. You're going to hear God better the more you live out what he's told you to do. Right? And then he tells us a little bit more specifically of how we listen well to the word of God. And the word for look in a mirror is an interesting word too. It's, it's to gaze at. It's to look at for a long time. It's an inspection word. I'm going to inspect myself in the mirror. Um, some of you do that a lot. Uh, some of you don't do that enough. But we're going to expect... Just joking. That was, that was rude. Just that was a joke. Um, I'm probably the one who don't do that enough. It's, a, it's an inspection word. It's to look at ourselves for a while and try to understand ourselves really well. And it's funny because it says that the person who leaves that experience often forgets even who they were, their very nature. It's like, a, it's like someone who looked in the mirror left and forgot, it would be like me looking in the mirror and leaving and forgetting I have a beard. That's how extreme this, this example is in this text. It would be like me leaving and forgetting I'm a white man. It would be like me leaving with the, as strong the language is in this text. It would be like me forgetting that I'm a man. Because it's saying that this person is leaving the mirror and forgetting of what nature he is, of what kind he is. That's how extreme it is. After this long inspection. If you can imagine a moment where you've inspected yourself in the mirror, and then it's going to help us understand what he means in verse 25. But the one who looks intently, this is a different word, but it's an intensification of the word that we've seen already, about how you might look at yourself in a mirror with intensity. The one who looks intensely into the perfect law of freedom, which can't be anything but a reference to Scripture. And continues in it. And, and this, is, this is an idea of not just continuing in obedience, but continually looks into the Scripture. Tarries at the Scripture. Um, oftentimes we have a tendency to treat the Bible like a pack of peanuts, right? Um, you've heard me say this before. 
we take the Bible out, we get our pack of peanuts, we open it, we, we slosh it back to say we've had our pack of peanuts, and now we can move on. Sometimes I do this in the morning. I hate pausing and cooking breakfast. Uh, to take the time to cook eggs and to cook all the things I need to do, I hate doing that. Does anybody else like that? I just hate the time. But I don't mind grabbing a granola bar, throwing it in. I don't do those peanuts, cashews, whatever it is. Something quick, something easy, just pound it in the back. Because why? Because I know you're supposed to eat breakfast. You're like, breakfast, most important meal of the day. You got to get your metabolism going. So, okay, it's important. I got to eat it. Let me get it in. Let me slosh it back and let me go on. So, oftentimes we treat the scripture the same way, right? We say, okay, I'm supposed to read the Bible every day. I've got to have my time. Let me get in it. All right, read. And there's some, probably some value in this, just like there's some value in those peanuts, right? <laughs> but let me read my chapter. Da, 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 da. Okay, I'm good. Check. Go. Let's, let's move back into life. Now, again, maybe some value in that, the habit, the routine. But what this passage is challenging us to do is move beyond the pack of peanuts. It's telling us to tarry at the scriptures, to reflect, to continue in them, to meditate on them, to read them and read them again, to study the word of God. The challenge for us, if we're going to hear God's spirit, we're not going to recognize God's spirit until we know God's scriptures. Because God's spirit is just going to speak into us the application, the reflection of the word of God, the scriptures of God. And the only way we'll be able to recognize when God's Spirit is truly speaking to us is when we have a, a foundation, a context, a saturation of God's Word. And the only way we get that is not by pack, taking the pack of peanuts approach to Scripture. It's by tearing at the Scripture. It's by digging in the Word of God. So the person who looks intently in the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it. This is the middle of verse 25. Is not forgetful here, but the doer who acts, this person will be blessed in what he does. So when this person lives out the habits and the righteousness and the practice of God's word, those, those experiences will be blessed. And then verse 26, and we're almost through this text and we'll wrap it up. If anyone thinks he is a religious, he is religious without controlling his tongue, tongue, but deceiving his heart, his religion is useless. If your, if your religion doesn't impact your life, then it's not having any impact on the world. It's useless. Maybe not useless, by the way, between you and God, but useless to the world. Verse 27, what is, what is, what is religion supposed to be? Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this. From God, when they have a religion that's from God, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, or literally to live life with, visit, spend time with orphans and widows when they're going through distressing situations, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Make a couple of thoughts on that, and then I'm going to kind of wrap it up. So, the the thing that this passage most impacted me around is this. It says we should be characterized by how we do the work, not by how we know the work. Now, I'm a guy who spent his whole life studying Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and blah, 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 blah. And it made me challenge, am I most characterized by my scholarly ability to know and study God's word or by how I live it? And it made me think about the churches I've been in and the churches that I see and, and just maybe hopefully not too judgmentally, but quite frankly, the Christians that the Christian that I am and the Christians that I see, how often we're characterized by our church services. How often we're characterized by what we're against. 
you ask a non-believing friend and you, uh, they know you well enough and you know them well enough for them to be honest with you, oh, tell me what you think character, characterizes Christians. Get, get a list of ten things from them. You won't like it. You know why you won't like it? Because it's true. We're characterized by the churches we go to, by the songs we sing, by our theological uh, patterns. We're characterized by our political stands, by the morality we're against. We may be characterized by some good things, like our integrity or our ethics. Sometimes we're characterized by our weird things we do and our weird theology, which, by the way, if you're outside the church and uh, you've never been to church, what we believe is weird. It's okay that it's weird, but it's weird. We're characterized by that. This passage says we should be characterized by none of those things. We as believers should be characterized by how we live the word, and then he gives us a very specific description of what living the word means. Living the word isn't what you want to put in there or what I want to put in there. I want to put in there the things I'm good at, by the way. Oh, yeah, I want to be characterized by living the word, and that means I want to be characterized by reading my Bible every day and be characterized by being integral and having ethics. That's not what he says. Living the word in the book of James, by the way, this will help us when we uncover what good works means later in James 2. Living out the word, living out in good works in the book of James, what we're supposed to be characterized is how we are serving the most needy and hurt and broken among us. Not just serving, how we're living life with them. How we're in relationship with them. James is saying all that other stuff, the integrity, the ethics, the morals, the religious practices, not that big a deal when it comes to how you should be known and your reputation you should have in the city and the neighborhood in which you live. But are you known for how you serve, how you love, and in the friendships you have with those who are most broken, most needy, most suffering, those that everyone else is turning, turning a blind eye towards, those who live on the, on the outcasts and the marginal parts of our, of our culture, those who are in socioeconomic situations where people would prefer that they be hidden and set aside, and I can't see them. I wish they weren't on the side of the street holding up signs when I drove by. I wish that was part of the, those parts of the cities would get cleaned up and wouldn't, wouldn't dirty my city. Jesus says, James, James says what Jesus taught us is that as believers, we should be characterized by those who engage and serve and love the people in this city who no one else wants to love or serve. So as you start to weigh, as we look at James chapter 2 here next week, as you start to weigh what good works really are and what we should be characterized as believers and as churches and as Restoration Church, Forget all the other stuff and begin to weigh ourselves. Let's begin to weigh ourselves on our reputation as it relates to serving others. So we started this message out with this. We said the untethered emotion never puts us into motion. James taught us early on that it's not our anger or other emotions that truly produce in us the kind of life and the life of godliness that lives itself out in the way we just talked about. But instead, it's when we listen and hear from the voice of God. It's like this. So fire, a burning fire is very powerful, right? If I lit a fire in the middle of this room, though, would it do better? Would it cause good or would it cause damage? It would cause damage. If I take that same fire and I put it in a cylinder of an engine, I control it. Then it causes 
production, motion. And what James is teaching us is that when our emotions are not the cause, but the result of our encounter with the Spirit through the Word of God, that emotion can put us in emotion in a way that not only changes ourselves, but changes a city and changes the parts of the city that need us the most. 